This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. And welcome to the About Books program and podcast. This is Book TV's bi-weekly look at the latest nonfiction books and publishing news. In a moment, you'll have the chance to hear from Librarian of Congress, Carla Hayden. But first, let's start with this week's publishing news. The Authors Guild announced that they are starting a banned book club to highlight several of the books that are being challenged or banned across the country. The virtual book club will be available on the Fable app, and according to Authors Guild CEO Mary Rassenberger, it will spark discussions across the country about the value of a diverse body of literature and the harm book banning causes. Also in the news, Andrea Elliott's The Invisible Child is the winner of this year's Gotham Book Prize. It's given to books written about or take place in New York City. The prize, established in 2020, comes with a $50,000 award. And in other award news, Joseph Henrik has won the 2022 Hayek Book Prize for his book, The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. This award is given in honor of the political philosopher and Nobel laureate F.A. Hayek, who most famously authored The Road to Serfdom, which is still a must-read in conservative circles. Also this week, the Library of Congress received a collection of manuscripts and papers by the late playwright Neil Simon. The collection of over 7,000 pieces was donated by Simon's wife, Elaine Joyce, and includes scripts for many of Simon's award-winning plays, including The Odd Couple, Brighton Beach Memoirs, and Lost in Yonkers. And according to NPD BookScan, which tracks such things, print book sales jumped up close to 17% for the week ending April 16th. However, sales overall remain down 6% for this year. Now, as an aside, although other formats such as audio and e-books are available, physical books still made up 76% of all publishers' sales revenue last year. Well, since its founding in 1800, the Library of Congress has grown to a budget of $800 million, 3,000 staff members, 
and 170 million items, and it's only had 14 librarians of Congress. The 14th is now on your screen, and that's Dr. Carla Hayden. Dr. Hayden, what do you think the patrons, Presidents Madison, Jefferson, and Adams, would think about the Library of Congress today? I think that they would be so delighted to see so many people from all over the country that are using the collections that are visiting in D.C. in three buildings, seeing exhibits, getting films on the lawn in the summer and doing all of these things and knowing that the Library of Congress is still that research arm for members of Congress and 24-7 they are supplying information. So they would be delighted. Is the Library of Congress available to all U.S. citizens? or to anybody in the world? Yes. In fact, it is the National Library, and anyone can really partake of the riches of the Library of Congress by going through what we call our digital front door, our website that has over 61 million items and connects you directly even to some of our librarians. And so you have access and you can get a reader's card at 16 and use one of the 20 reading rooms that are in our iconic building, the Jefferson Building in Washington, D.C., and the Madison Building and the Adams Building, three buildings right in Washington, D.C. What's the relationship between the library and the Congress itself? I mentioned that it's the research arm and there's a special unit, the Congressional Research Service, that just gives nonpartisan objective research and reference to members of Congress and their staff. I mentioned that 24 seven. So whatever topic or subject or things that are being discussed or considered by Congress legislation, this group of specialists in every field provides information that members of Congress need for their deliberations. And their values really include being that objective source, but also confidential information and confidentiality. So that's the main, that's how the Library of Congress started serving Congress. And now it serves not only Congress, but the people Congress serves, the entire nation. So, Dr. Carla Hayden, you're the 14th Librarian of Congress. Who appoints you? Do you apply for this job? The Librarian of Congress, uh, the position, is a presidential nomination. So the President of the United States nominates a candidate, and Congress actually votes on and hopefully approves Uh, the Librarian of Congress. And so I was nominated by President Barack Obama and I was confirmed in the Senate. And confirmed, when you say confirmed, you have both Republicans and Democrats voting for you in the Senate. Yes, in fact, and the person who keeps a running tally of it, my mom has the uh, official listing there, but it was 74 uh, to 18, and a few abstentions. <laughs> well, speaking of your parents, every time we talk to you, we do talk about the library, and we'll come back to that. But who were your parents, and where did you grow up? Let's learn a little bit, bit about you. 
Well, my family um, is from central Illinois, Springfield on my dad's side and part south of Springfield and Champaign, Illinois, where uh, the university is, is my mom's family. And so we have uh, strong Midwestern roots. And I, though, was born in Tallahassee, Florida, on a campus of Florida A&M, a historically black college, because my dad was teaching uh, violin and string there. And my mom is a accompanist. So that's how I got to be born there. And then, as you can see, though, um, they were classically trained musicians. I had no talent. so. That's how I ended up a librarian, though. I love to read, though. And your mother is still with us. Were your parents readers? They were avid readers, and so were my grandparents, especially my father's mother. I would spend summers in Springfield, Illinois, and she started reading to me, and then they took me to the state library in Springfield, so I got a chance to see a beautiful uh, library, and then I learned to read myself, and then, then that was it. Well, now, according to several sources, there is a book called Bright April, which inspired your love of reading. What is that? It reinforced my love of reading because it was a book. I saw it when I was about eight or nine, and it was the first time I saw myself in a book. It's about a little girl, African-American girl, who was a brownie. I was a brownie, and her family had a piano in the living room, and it just reminded me so much of myself. She had two pigtails and so did I. And I just loved that book and knew that books, I loved them so much because they gave me windows to the world and took me places that I couldn't imagine. But when I saw that book, I saw myself too. So it was a mirror and that just cemented my love of reading. And at what point did you decide to give libraries a chance? Well, I always loved libraries because they were full of the things that I love, books. And when I was uh, graduating from undergrad, I found out that there was an entire profession that included opportunities to design libraries, to select the books that are in there. I had no idea that there were so many parts to this thing that I love, the library that contained those things that I love. And so that started in terms of my career and finding out that there was librarianship. And a master's and a doctorate in library science from the University of Chicago. You got to know a pretty famous couple in Chicago then, didn't you? Yes. Well, I was working and I worked at the Chicago Public Library, then I taught at the University of Pittsburgh, went back to Chicago to be a, uh, the chief librarian. And at that time, a young lady, uh, Michelle, uh, was working at City Hall, and, and she was a deputy mayor and someone very uh, in that administration. And the library was part of her portfolio. And that's how I met uh, Mrs. Obama. And got to know the president then as well? Robinson then. Right. Then they got engaged and married and everything like that. So who would have thought that years later uh, and our paths didn't, they weren't entangled, uh, but years later that I would be 
basically recommended by a number of uh, people in the library community. And he would uh, select me to be his nominee. Carla Hayden, what was it about the Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore that attracted you for so many years? The Enoch Pratt Free Library was the first library system in the United States. And that means that they had a central library and other cities had central libraries, so Boston, uh, New York, of course. But it was the first library in the country about the 1870s that was established with branch libraries and a central library. And Mr. Enoch Pratt was a entrepreneur that came down from Massachusetts and made his fortune during the Civil War in Baltimore. And Andrew Carnegie heard about this system, free for all, regardless of religion or color. And he said that in the establishment in Pratt. And Andrew Carnegie came down to Baltimore to find out how this worked. And it was the first public-private covenant in terms of providing public libraries. And Andrew Carnegie, in his book, Gospel of Wealth, credits Enoch Pratt for demonstrating what private philanthropy could do, especially in libraries. So it was legendary in the library field, the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And you were the director there for many years, for over 20 years. Over 20 years. And it was a wonderful time to be involved with the library because it also functions as the state library for the Maryland. And so you had the 23 counties in the city, a system of taking materials back and forth throughout the state that was centralized in Baltimore. So you'd have trucks and things going out. Think of a UPS or something going out uh, with that. And also it was the headquarters for the state network, uh, IT network for all of the other libraries. Well, during your tenure, Dr. Hayden, at Enoch Pratt, a couple of social and political issues came up. One was after 9-11, the Patriot Act was passed and you became well known for your objection to it. As a librarian, why did you object? During that time, I was the president of the American Library Association. And that's the largest group of people who are, it's a membership organization of librarians, booksellers, everyday people who are interested in supporting libraries. And at that time, the Patriot Act included a section, section 215, that gave authority for looking at records And libraries had always been, and still are, uh, very much in partnership with security and national security and local security and being partners in that. What was concerning with the section at that time was that there was a opportunity for examination of records without uh, certain legal uh, safeguards and notification of the people who were being uh, reviewed and also just looking in general at, for instance, everyone that took out a certain book. And so what the Library Association wanted to make sure is that while security 
was being strengthened and enforced, that we also protected people's rights to know because wanting having an interest in something might not indicate that you're going to do something illegal or, or criminal. And so we worked with government and provisions were made in that section. And so now we are able to continue in our partnership for national security. And because of your speaking out against that Section 215, you became Ms. Magazine's Person of the Year in 2003, and you were quoted as saying, libraries are a cornerstone of democracy where information is free and equally available to everyone. And when you think about what that means in terms of the founding of the United States, libraries, public libraries as we know them now, including the Pratt Library, really got their start after the Civil War and during the 1870s, 1880s, with the spread of public education. So the opportunity to have free public education as well as access to information started at the same time. And I think it really helped make this a unique combination when you think worldwide. The other issue I wanted to bring up during your time in Baltimore was the death of Freddie Gray and the riots that ensued afterward. What was your role with the libraries at that time? I was the head of the library system and the Enid Pratt still has a very busy library right at the epicenter of where all of the unrest was taking place, Pennsylvania Avenue branch. And the librarian who was there at the time, Elaine Towson, knew that that library needed to still be that opportunity center in the midst of all of that unrest. And so we made sure that the library, right after the things, scenes that people saw on television, the car burning, the library was right across from that uh, drugstore that was also uh, on the news, that that library would be open. And sure enough, the next day, people were coming into that library to get on the computers, to get, and eventually in the next few weeks after that, because there weren't stores open. It became a distribution center for food. It became a place for classes because young people were out of school. And it just became the place that it always was in a library ecosphere and in that community. Well, people have- I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, given what you did at Enoch Pratt and given what you're doing now at the Library of Congress, how different are these positions? They're actually very similar because in a national library world, you're still providing access to as many people as possible. And you have a diverse community, a national community. You're providing special services to Congress, you're, but also you are making sure that as many people as possible can use the resources that the world's largest library has. Well, we've talked about some of the main issues, but there are some fun aspects to your job as well. And one of those is the Gershwin Award, which is what? 
The Gershwin Award for Popular Song is an award. It's the given to an individual or individuals who demonstrate and have demonstrated excellence in popular music. And they, the winners have included uh, Paul McCartney, Carol King, Smokey Robinson, my first Gershwin Prize winner in, in this position, uh, Tony Bennett, an interpreter of popular song, and most recently, Garth Brooks, right before the pandemic, and not long ago, Mr. Lionel Richie. Well, we do have to show a little bit of video that was taken at the Gershwin Awards of you rocking with Lionel Uh-oh. Richie, singing all <laughs> night long. You can see Dr. Hayden up there in the box with Mrs. Richie while Lionel Richie performed. Is that a fun evening for you? It was wonderful because in one of the previous Gershwin Award concerts, uh, it was noted uh, the uh, MC, the Master of Ceremonies, Samuel Jackson, mentioned that it was bipartisan karaoke because these songs are popular and everybody knows the songs and they're singing along. And that unity and what it demonstrates, too, is that music can bring people together. And that was a great demonstration. You had everybody on their feet and everybody talk, singing, and it was wonderful. So, Dr. Hayden, if somebody is listening or watching this interview and wants to be the 15th Librarian of Congress, what do you recommend to them? The first thing I'd recommend is going to the library's website, loc.gov, and just getting a sense of what is going on at the library now. They can see our digital strategy, our plan for the next 30 years. They can see what kinds of activities that are going on. They can really get a sense of the collections and possibly then think about what would be the role of the library going forward in the next 20 or 30 years. And so that getting familiar with the Library of Congress and then dreaming big. Dr. Carla Hayden, 14th Librarian of Congress, thank you for joining us on Book TV. Thank you. And this is About Books, Book TV's look at the latest publishing news and nonfiction books. Here's some books being published this week. In How to Prevent the Next Pandemic, Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates weighs in on how the public and private sectors can work together to mitigate the next pandemic. Former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has another new book out, and he offers his thoughts in this one on what makes a good leader. It's called Leadership. And in This Will Not Pass, New York Times political correspondents Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns report on the 2020 presidential election and President Biden's first year in office. Also being published this week, Bill O'Reilly and Martin Dugard have another book out, and this is a look at America's war on terror in the years following 9-11. Their latest book is called Killing the Killers. And in Seen and Unseen, Broadcast journalists Mark Lamont Hill and Todd Brewster report on how technology and social media have impacted the conversation about race in America. Well, this weekend on Book TV, on our monthly call-in program in depth, 
Our guest is author and Fox Business News anchor Larry Kudlow. He also served as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Trump administration. He joins us to talk about Wall Street, taxes, and the U.S. economy in general. His latest book is JFK and the Reagan Revolution. Here's a portion of him discussing that. An economy stifled by restrictive tax rates will never produce enough revenue to balance the budget, just as it will never produce enough jobs or even enough profits. And here's Reagan quoting, quote, John F. Kennedy said that back in 1962 when he was asking for a tax decrease, a cut in tax rates across the board. And he was proven right. That is Reagan. And before that is Kennedy. And I just want to say this for the umpteenth time. Kennedy, the Democrat. Reagan, the Republican. And as the underheading in this morning's paper for us, Kennedy and Reagan both spurred growth through bipartisan tax cuts. That's just what we need now. And that was Larry Kudlow, who was our guest this month on In-Depth on Book TV. Now, if you've missed any portion of that program, you can go to booktv.org, click on the In-Depth tab, and you can see the full two hours in its entirety. Finally, here's a look at some of the current best-selling nonfiction books according to IndieBound. Topping the list is University of Houston professor Brene Brown's thoughts about making meaningful human connections. Her book is called Atlas of the Heart. After that is Crying in H Mart, a memoir by Michelle Zahner. Now, this is one of those books that's been on bestseller lists for months. Also on the list, investor Bill Browder recounts his investigation into a money laundering scheme that led ultimately to Russian President Vladimir Putin. His book is called Freezing Order. And that's followed by Bittersweet, Susan Cain's thoughts on embracing loss and sadness. And wrapping up our look at IndieBound's best-selling nonfiction books is Tegan Gerard's cookbook, Half-Baked Harvest Every Day. And that's a look at this week's publishing news and the latest nonfiction books. Thanks for joining us on the About Books program and podcast. About Books is available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now app or wherever you get your podcasts.